0: At the proper time. And for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling you the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Last time we looked at the first seven verses of this chapter, in verse one we have corporate prayer described under the words entreaties. Prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings. In the ESV, it's supplications, prayers, intercession, and thanksgivings. And we can summarize those four words in this way. We are to pray for specific needs of the moment, things that are going on right now in the life of the church and the world around us. That's one of those words. We are to pray for the ongoing general needs that we always have as the people of God, things like wisdom. For wisdom and holiness and for the gospel to be successful. We are to look past ourselves and pray for others. Kingdom concerns and specific concerns of others that in the providence of God we come to know about. That is intercession. And we are to praise God and to give Him thanks uh, for the many answered prayers that we have and the blessings that we have from His hand. And so those are, generally speaking, those things that... Uh, Paul is talking about in verse 1 when he uses those four terms. and We also saw in, in verse 1 that our prayers are to be for all people, all kinds of people. No group or class is excluded from our prayer life. And that is further explained by the things we see in verses 2 and 7. Now, our verse that I want you to look at tonight, verse 8, begins with the word, therefore. He says, therefore... I want the men in every place to pray. Uh, I think in the ESV about two words in or three words in is the word then. And so that's the connection back to verses 1 through 7. There were reasons given in verses 1 through 7 why we should uh, in these many ways pray for these many people. Why should we do that? Well, there are two basic reasons that were given that we looked at last time in those first verses and are behind the therefore of our verse 8 is, first of all, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. It is We pray for the church, that the church may have peace, not selfishly, but for the sake of the gospel. Some have suggested that the rare words tranquil and quiet, one of them is used, In this verse and one other place, the other word is used just in this verse, so they are are rare words in the New Testament. Some have suggested that these two words refer to the external and the internal piece of the church. In other words, the piece of the church in the world and the community and all that's around us that affect us, but also the piece uh, that uh, would be appropriate for us to have inside the, the church as well. And the second reason given in those first seven verses was very specifically for the sake of the gospel as it goes forth from the church. The church is to be the ground and pillar of the truth. But that's what we're doing in church, but our focus is also to be outside of our church and our community and how the gospel affects the larger world around us and that we are... Uh, We we saw in that passage that God desires all kinds of people to be saved and to know the truth. Christ gave himself a ransom for that purpose. Therefore, verse 8, I want men in every place to pray. Now, the next words in verse 8 after the word therefore is I want. Now, the word I want is a strong word. Uh, I'm reading from the New American Standard. If you remember back in verse 4, that verse begins by saying that God desires. And then in verse 8, the New American Standard says, I won't. In the ESV, I think in both places it says desires. These words are not the same words. In verse 4, the word that is translated desires is a word that means something more like a wish or, or, or that a person would be pleased with such a thing. But in verse 8, our word means to will something deliberately, to purpose something. Paul is not saying, I wish the men would pray, or I would be pleased if the men were to pray. Paul is saying something that's more like this I decree that the men are to pray, or I purpose that the men in the church are to be praying men. This is not a recommendation or a suggestion. Men are commanded uh, in verse 8 to pray. And so public corporate prayer is a required element of our commanded worship. It's not an optional thing that this is a good suggestion we might do this. We are to take up this command. Therefore I won't and then the next words in verse 8 are the men. Now, earlier in this chapter, there have been references to all men in several places. Uh, it's a generic term. It means people or mankind. It does not mean males specifically. So it's perfectly appropriate uh, in uh, at the end of verse 1, for example, to say that uh, those things are to be made on behalf of all people. It would be perfectly appropriate to translate the word man uh, in that way in verse 1 here in verse 8 the word is specifically males I want men that is I want the males to pray I hope that I or Pastor Justin will at some future point address the issue of men praying and women praying that is males praying and females praying We've been talking about that subject, and I hope that that one of us will take that up in the future. But why, in verse 8, is this address being made to the males of the church? Why this command? Well, some think that this command is to make public prayer, public corporate prayer, exclusively male some think that Paul is generally addressing deficiencies in the church when he writes a letter like this letter to Timothy. And that the point of this verse is is that uh, he is given a corrective command to men of the church because the men of the church have been negligent to take up this duty and to pray as they ought, Regardless of the reason, whatever the, Paul's motive is, we'll get into that maybe at another time, but regardless of what that reason is, the command is clear. The men... The males of the church are commanded to pray in the public gatherings of the church. That is the clear meaning of verse 8. The next words in our verse are, in every place. Now, he's referring here to the fact that he wants this to be done in all churches. He doesn't mean in every place indiscriminately. He is talking about here, we are talking about in the context of Christ's church and of public worship. And he is speaking to Timothy as a pastor of a church, giving instructions to the church. And what he is saying here is that this is not just something I want you, Timothy, to do at Ephesus, where this letter is coming to Timothy, and he's the young pastor there. He is saying that that wherever the church of Christ meets, this is a command that applies. The men are to pray. No church is accepted. And this church, this church, Our church is not accepted from this command because he says that he wants the men in every place to pray. This is a command that comes directly to us. The men of this church are to pray. And then the word pray, the next word in our verse, is a general word for prayer, which includes all those forms of prayer mentioned in verse 1. It's actually a a, uh, similar word to the second of those uh, terms in verse one, the one that uh is prayers in the new American standard it's a very similar word to that. so I think the command is very clear: The men of the church are to pray when the church gathers for worship. This verse also tells us something else It says that the men that I want the men in every place to pray, and then it has a description of what kind of prayer is a a description of what this prayer is to be like. And it says, Lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Lifting up holy hands. We talked a few weeks ago on Wednesday evening when we were discussing the active and passive obedience of Christ. We talked about Psalm 24, Verses 3 and 4, it says this, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. In that study, we saw that the only way we can have clean hands and a pure heart is through the positive righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is imputed to us. He is, as Jeremiah the prophet says, the Lord our Righteousness. No clean hands, no pure heart apart from Christ. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah. I want us to look at two passages there. Here's the problem Isaiah chapter 1 is the first passage. And let's look at verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instructions of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now let's pause there for just a moment. The prophet is speaking to Judah. He is speaking to Jerusalem. And when he calls them in verse 10, Sodom and Gomorrah, what he is saying is, you're, Jude- you're Judah and you're Jerusalem. But spiritually, before God, you are Sodom and Gomorrah. So I don't want us to misunderstand. He's not talking to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's talking to uh, Judah, his people, Judah and Jerusalem. And he says this, "'What are your multiplied sacrifices to me?' says the Lord. "'I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. "'I take no pleasure in in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats.' When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. So here he describes hands that he uses the term that they're bloody hands. Now in our verse in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we, he talks about lifting up holy hands and so here's the problem the problem is that it's not just in any way we're supposed to come to God we're supposed to come to him with hands that are clean hands hands that are holy hands look at Isaiah 59 Isaiah 59 verse 1 Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, neither is His ear so dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood and your tongue mutters wickedness. If we have hands... Fingers that have been marred and polluted by iniquity. This verse says that that creates a barrier between us and our God. And he it's not that He cannot hear, verse 1 says. It's not that He's not able to hear. It's that He does not choose to hear and He will not hear us because our hands are not pure hands. Our hands are not holy hands. Paul says to Timothy and to us, holy hands. Now, Brothers, I hope that we can all agree that if we must come before God in prayer on the basis of having clean, holy hands of our own making, that none of us will stand up and pray. I hope that we can agree that that would be the case. If our hands are holy hands, it is because they belong to Christ If our hands are holy, it is because of the grace of Christ. And if our hands are accepted by God as holy hands, it is because we are accepted in the Beloved and God hears our prayers for Christ's sake. Who is to pray? Christian men are to pray. Believers in our Lord Jesus Christ are to pray. And I suggest that every converted man... In this church is included in this command. And that every one of us should give careful consideration to our duty in regard to this important part of the life of this church. That none of us are excluded, because none of us are going to stand up and pray, because we have made our hands clean. We have holy hands because we are sanctified by the Spirit and because we have been brought uh, into uh, a state of holiness by our being saved and being brought into the kingdom of God and being joined to our Lord Jesus Christ. now note briefly with me two descriptions, two other descriptions of men who are to pray that's in our verse. The first term is without wrath. The word wrath there is a very straightforward word. It means wrath, anger, indignation. It's the same word as in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 when it says Jesus saves us from the wrath to come. It's that same word, the word wrath. It is anger towards others, and particularly in this case, others in the church. Uh, if we have anger towards others, and particularly others in the church, then we are excluded from public prayer. Turn with me to Ephesians 4 for a moment. I actually want us to look at two statements here. we at the end of the chapter, verse 29, near the end of the chapter, Ephesians chapter 4. We read this. Verse 29, "...let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word, as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear." Well, I would suggest to you that this applies to all kinds of speech, all of our speech, but certainly this would be something that we would, we would be keeping this directive when we pray and when we publicly pray and when we pray together. We, would be, we, are, we are edifying one another and we are, uh, we are bringing grace to those who hear as we together pray for those common needs and concerns that we have. But then he says this, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We are not to grieve the Holy Spirit, and in the context of we're talking about prayer, we're not to grieve the Holy Spirit who engages with us and intercedes for us as we pray. That's what Romans chapter 8 tells us, that the Spirit intercedes for us and takes up with us when we pray, and He brings our prayers to God. We don't want to grieve Him. Well, how will we grieve Him? Well, verse 31 gets back to the issue of our statement that we're to be without wrath. It says in verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Praying and those things that we just read in verse 31. Praying and wrath simply do not go together. Our praying well is dependent on the Holy Spirit. But if we have anger, we're grieving the Spirit. We're doing the opposite of what we would need to do if we were to be successful in our praying. The other word is and dissension, without dissension. Literally, it's a word dialogue. We get our English word dialogue from this word. It doesn't always have a negative connotation. It can mean to deliberate, to talk back and forth, but it is used is most often used negatively in the New Testament. Matthew fifteen nineteen says, "For out of the heart come evil thoughts." And that term, evil thoughts, is this word dialogue. And what does it mean when it says, "Out of the heart comes evil thoughts"? And it's this word dialogue. What it means that we have a propensity in our hearts, in our own mind. To have conversation with ourselves, to go round and round and round about things that we shouldn't be thinking about and talking to ourselves about, and planning things that are wrong and evil, and having conversations with other people where we tell them off, or whatever kind of things we do in our minds that other people don't know about. you don't ever do anything like that, do you? Only me. <laughs> and I try not to do that. But just for example. We, we, we think things and we, we carry on this dialogue in our hearts that we shouldn't do. Evil thoughts. Philippians 2.14 uses it this way. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. And that word disputing is this word dialogue. And so it's taken in a negative sense of us having conversations that are not wholesome and good and edifying. But instead, where we have conversations that there's conflict and there's trouble connected to them. Now, we're in Ephesians 4. Turn back with me for a moment to the first of the chapter. Let's read the first six verses. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Why is the unity of the church so important? Why is it important that we are one, one hope, one faith, serving one Lord? Why are we so concerned always about the peace and the unity of the church? Why does Paul here say that we are to be diligent, that we are to be working hard to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Well, I would suggest our 1 Timothy 2.8 verse is another reason that you can add to many, many other reasons for why we ought to be diligent to be preserving the unity of the church. This is yet another reason, and here it is. We cannot pray if there is wrath and dissension. Wrath and dissension separate us from the first reason given for our praying. You remember the first reason given? That we might have a tranquil and peaceful life. If we have wrath and dissension, then we don't have that quiet and peaceful life that God wants His church to have. And if we have wrath and dissension, and this is an awful thing to think about, we, as the people of God, in this church, if that were true, we would have cut ourselves off from God and we would be unable to pray because of the wrath and dissension that we would have in the body. We would actually be cutting ourselves off from being able to go to God as we need to do, as we want to do, in prayer. And so when he, when, when, Paul says that we are to do this, that we are to pray without wrath and dissension, it is extremely important that we have peace and unity in Christ's church, that we be able to pray as we ought and seek the blessing of God. Now, I want to close by asking us to consider Uh, the sanctifying effect of this command. The sanctifying effect of it. The command is, I want the men in every place to pray. While we are holy because of the grace of God in Christ, and for no other reason but that, I hope that not one of us, as a matter of conscience, would be able to stand and lead in public prayer while we are involved in known, purposeful sin. We can never be holy in our own strength and goodness. That is certainly true. But unrepented of sin, a refusal to obey when we know better, an unwillingness to pursue holiness... These are things that mock the idea of holy hands. Now, we have holy hands because of Christ. But if those things are true about us, I would hope as a matter of good conscience that we wouldn't mock the concept of lifting up holy hands by engaging in public prayer if that were the case. I hope that every time we have public prayer and we men are confronted with our duty to pray, that we feel holy pressure to be By the grace of God, men who can in good conscience pray. Are you going to be disqualified because your wife or your children are sitting and watching and they know about your anger? Are you going to be disqualified because someone in this congregation is sitting and watching and they know that you are a man of dissension? The next time that you're tempted to be angry, or dissentious. I trust that God will use this as a means of grace to check you. You have a solemn responsibility to lead the people of God in prayer without wrath and dissension. And so this holy duty ought to help us, encourage us, motivate us to walk carefully so that we can be men of prayer in Christ's church. It ought to be just one of many motives. For us to seek holiness and to try to, by the grace of God, do what we can to have holy hands. Turn with me to James chapter 4 and we'll close with this verse. James chapter 4 and verse 8. James chapter 4 and verse 8. The verse begins by saying this, Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Does that sound like anything that might have something to do with prayer? I would suggest that maybe not exclusively prayer, but certainly that's what we're doing when we pray. We want to draw near to God, and we want God to draw near to us when we pray, and when we pray together as a church. We want this to happen. And what is the very next thing that James says? He says, cleanse your hands and purify your heart. He's given us a command here that we're to go out and try to do this, that we are to go out and try to have clean hands and a pure heart. Christ gives us clean hands and a pure heart, but we are to be about the business of cleaning our hands and purifying our hearts so that we can be near to God and He be near to us. We certainly do this by grace. We do this by God's help. But real Christians do do it. This command is for all men. Let us seek to do it well. We're commanded that the men in every place pray without wrath and without dissension. So pray that God will help us to do that.